Hi, writers. This is Jim Thayer. Patty and I have returned from our vacation, and what a wonderful time we had. We visited Istanbul, Jerusalem, and Rome. It was exhilarating. But let's get to work, and I hope have some fun, and talk about writing. First, a question I've thought a lot about. Why do many writers, including me, sometimes hesitate to begin a project? Why do we find ourselves putting off typing the first words? What stops us from beginning composing our fiction? The biographer W. Jackson Bate believes it is the inner resistance to dragging ourselves to the bar of self-judgment. And I think he's on to something. As long as our novel resides only in our heads, it's perfect. We can nudge the concept here and there, do a lot of cogitating about it, dream up the heroine and the villain and the scenes, and as long as we haven't written a word of the novel, it remains perfect. But perfect is 100%. Perfect can't be improved upon. It can only be lessened. So the minute we write the first words, there's a chance, and it's a good chance, the novel is no longer perfect. So we write. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Not bad. It's got a nice cadence. But wait, we shouldn't begin a sentence with a pronoun, should we? It. It is a weak word, especially as the first word of a novel. And where's our power verb? Ran, chased, dove, swam. And it was the best of times doesn't create an image for the reader, does it? Nothing for the reader to see in her head. And which was it, the best of times or the worst of times? Shouldn't we be less wishy-washy? Why throw out an existential puzzle as the first sentence of a novel? Who wants philosophy in a story's first sentence? So we have our first couple of sentences written down, and we don't know if they are perfect, and in not knowing if they are perfect, it makes the project less, less than perfect. We now have some text to worry about hard, inescapable words on the screen that we put there. Our project has gone from being perfect in our heads to maybe being less than perfect on the screen. What should we do? Well, this is easy advice to give and harder to live up, uh, live up to, but let me suggest that we stop worrying. Anything on the screen is better than nothing on the screen. You can look at these sentences and maybe polish them later. Get your words down on the screen. Until we do that, we don't have anything. 90% perfect typed out on our screen is much, much better than perfect only in our heads with an empty screen. Don't worry about perfect. It's an unobtainable goal. The Gettysburg Address is perfect, and that's, that's about it for perfection. And what's more, you'll be exhilarated to have begun, to have really begun, with words on the screen. Instead of a perfect nothing, you've got something right there on your screen. It's a wonderful feeling. Writers write, so we should get over to the computer and start. Here is a quiz. What do these occupations have in common? Physicists, mathematicians, and poets as opposed to these occupations, historians, 
biologists, philosophers, and novelists. So in one column we have physicists, mathematicians, and poets, and in the other we have historians, biologists, philosophers, and novelists, which is to say, us. There's a fascinating article in the Wall Street Journal about creativity and its connection to age. The article is titled, Fleeting Youth, Fading Creativity by Jonah Lehrer. When James Watson was 24 years old, he was puzzling out the structure of DNA. And when he was 25, in 1953, he co-wrote one of the most important scientific papers of all time. This is Jonah Lehrer in the Wall Street Journal. Scientific revolutions are often led by the youngest scientists. Isaac Newton was 23 when he began inventing calculus. Albert Einstein published several of his most important pages, uh, important papers at the tender age of 26. Werner Heisenberg pioneered quantum mechanics in his mid-20s. At the time, all these men were all inexperienced and immature, and yet they managed to transform their fields. Why are young physicists and poets more creative? Uh, Jonah Lehrer asks in his article. They benefit, at least in part, from their willingness to embrace novelty and surprise, because they haven't become, quote, encultured, end quote, or weighted down with too much conventional wisdom. They're more willing to rebel against the status quo. While physics, math, and poetry have always been dominated by their most inexperienced practitioners, other disciplines seem to benefit from more age. People working in fields such as biology, history, novel writing, and philosophy might not peak until later in life. What accounts for these variations, Jonah Lehrer asks in his Wall Street Journal article. He suggests they are caused by intrinsic features of the disciplines. Those fields with logically consistent sets of principles, such as physics and chess, tend to encourage youthful productivity, since it's relatively easy to acquire the necessary expertise. Because the essential facts can be quickly learned, and it usually doesn't take that long to write a lyric poem, the precocious student is free to begin innovating at an early age. In contrast, fields fields that are loosely defined and full of ambiguous concepts, such as biology, history, and novel writing, lead to later peak productive ages. After all, before a researcher can invent a useful new idea, he or she must first learn an intimidating assortment of details. That's Jonah Lehrer in the Wall Street Journal. What's the lesson from this article? Age and experience are useful in novel writing. Age and experience are useful for novelists. If we haven't had our big breakthrough in writing by age 30 or 40 or 50, we shouldn't worry about it. We are benefiting every day we age. Let's talk about qualifiers and intensifiers. 
We as fiction writers want to come up with a big and bold plot, a riveting story for our readers, and sometimes we talk about that, and sometimes we talk about how to make our individual sentences shine. Why not have both, a good story and good writing? Good writing, the sentence-by-sentence pieces of our story, is a compilation of many techniques, and here's a really good one, avoiding qualifiers and intensifiers. E.B. White called qualifiers and intensifiers, quote, the leeches that infest the pond of prose, sucking the blood of words, end quote. And I agree. White was talking about needless qualifiers. Here's some of them. Rather, somewhat, generally, virtually, pretty, as in pretty much, slightly, a bit, little, sort of, kind of, almost. Here are examples of sentences weakened by qualifiers. I was rather tired. She was slightly stooped. He was a bit timid. I was a little embarrassed. He was a bit hesitant. He was sort of hungry. I read once that these are called vulgar intensifiers. An intensifier is a modifier that has little meaning except to intensify the meaning it modifies. Isn't that a wonderful circular definition? An intensifier is a modifier that has little meaning except to intensify the meaning it modifies. They include really, very much, so, as in, I really liked that book, or my cold bothers me so much. Here are a few more intensifiers. I honestly don't know what you mean. I literally couldn't wait. He was positively giddy. He, frankly, was lying. I truly think it's raining. The movie is well worth seeing. I'm very cold. He actually drove the car. The board was perfectly level. A fifth grader who has an 80-word essay and needs 100 words can add 20 intensifiers to his essay fairly randomly and then handed in with confidence that nothing has changed between 80 and 100 words. Intensifiers add nothing except to the word count. And then there are qualifiers. These are the opposite of the intensifier, and they weaken a phrase while taking up space. A bad combination. Here are some. He was a bit foolish. She's pretty near the end of her rope. I'm kind of sorry I did that. She sort of enjoyed the movie. He was somewhat partial to her. The fight was rather bloody. He was almost exhausted. Each of these sentences is more clear and more powerful without the intensifier or qualifier. So why do we use these? Uh, these phrases creep into our conversations because they are fill and allow our minds to catch up with our spoken words. We can add qualifiers and intensifiers arbitrarily and without thinking and so have an extra beat to think about what to say next. Perhaps they are needed in conversation, but not in writing. Usually, 
not even in written dialogue. The use of intensifiers and qualifiers often indicates the writer couldn't think of the accurate word, so the writer modified a word that wasn't quite right. For example, he was a bit angry. A bit here is a qualifier. The writer thinks angry is too strong, so a bit makes it less than angry. But why not use an accurate word instead of the weak qualifier, a bit? He was annoyed. He was upset. He was irritated. Or even better, show rather than tell. He grit his teeth. He rolled his eyes. Instead of she was very cold, very here is an intensifier, try she was freezing. Or better yet, show she was freezing with she wrapped her arms around herself and her breath was steam. If we find ourselves using intensifiers and qualifiers, it's li- it likely means we haven't yet found the best word for what we want to get across. But exceptions exist here too. Sometimes the rhythm of a sentence is improved with an otherwise unneeded intensifier. He was indeed a fool. Let's the mind pause a beat at indeed for the sentence's payoff. A fool. She was utterly charmed. Uh, That's at times better than she was charmed. Utterly is an emphasis that gives a better rhythm to the sentence. How do we know when an intensifier or qualifier is just filler or when it improves the sound of a sentence? I'm unaware of rules that apply. It's in the writer's ear. If it sounds better, use it. But be aware of intensifiers and qualifiers so that you can eliminate the ones that don't add anything but word count to your writing. Instead of a qualifier and a verb, search for a more accurate verb. Instead of an intensifier and a verb, find the right verb. In most cases, he was annoyed is better writing than he was rather angry. Let's talk about swear words. Profanity. I know all the swear words, and and you do too. We knew them all before we stopped frequenting school playgrounds. Long ago they ceased to shock us, and long ago they ceased to impress us as, as witty or artful. In my opinion, uh, profanity indicates a speaker or writer's bankruptcy of thought. It's easy to fall back on foul language because it doesn't require any insight or creativity. Nasty words are as common and as empty as pretty or cool or nice. For a while in the early 60s, when four-letter words began dappling daring novels, this language passed for cleverness in some circles. It no longer does. These words, uh, George Carlin's Fable 7 and some others, are now trite. And while profanity adds nothing to a novel, no reader finishes a novel and says, Hey, where were all the offensive words? I sure missed them. Vulgar language detracts uh, 
from a novel for many readers who often won't finish a book that includes four-letter invectives and don't want the stuff lying around their homes and won't recommend a book to others. And if profanity was ever considered edgy or clever, it no longer is. These days, vulgar language is the opposite of clever. It's trite and common. Books are sinking under the weight of the vulgar language they contain. And I think we as writers can do better. We can be more inventive, more clever. Yeah, I'm sort of a prude. But I think the use of foul language in a novel seldom offers gain and can work to the book's detriment. But, alas, Mark Twain disagrees. Quote, Profanity provides a relief denied even to prayer. That's Mark Twain. Let's talk about slang, the use of slang in our novel. Slang dates a novel. If our novel is set in the 1950s, there is no better way of letting the reader know the the era than the use of words such as swell. This was a swell party. Slang generated by talk shows and sitcoms and athlete interviews often has the life of a mayfly. Nothing makes a novel a period piece and makes it seem so out of step than the use of last year's hot sitcom-inspired slang. In A Man in Full, Tom Wolfe has a character say, quote, Give me a break, which dates the novel to the 1990s, which is probably Wolfe's very purpose. In the first Superman movie, Lois Lane laughs at Clark Kent's use of the word swell. Clark has been up in the polar ice cap since he was a teenager and, and didn't know that swell wasn't used much anymore, and it dates him to the 1940s. Slang comes and goes quickly. Peter Ackroyd, in his terrific book, London, the Biography, writes about London slang. Peter Ackroyd says, At the beginning of the 19th century, too, street slang appears and disappears for no particular reason. The word quaz, that's Q-U-O-Z, was a great favorite, for example, and was capable of almost any meaning. According to Charles Mackey in his Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions, it was a mark of incredulity or hilarity or condescension. Quote, when a mischievous urchin wished to annoy a passenger and create mirth for his chums, he looked him in the face and cried out, Quaz! Every alehouse resounded with quaz, every street corner was noisy with it, and every wall for miles around was chalked with it. I have two daughters, and when they were younger in junior high school, slang went through our house like grain through a goose. I loved hearing it. But I try to not write it uh, in a novel. And the reason is, it'll set my novel in today, permanently, with today's slang. I think most often we want to make our stories timeless, and using today's slang will work against it. Next year, 
my novel that sounded so slangy and contemporary today may sound like yesterday when I want it to always be contemporary. We as writers should know a lot of words off the top of our head, shouldn't we? Turns out most of us don't. The English language recently celebrated its one millionth word, according to the Global Language Monitor, which is an association of academics that tracks the use of new words. The widespread popularity of English as a second language in Asia has brought about the most fertile period of word generation since William Shakespeare's time, with new terms coined on average every 98 minutes, according to the Global Language Monitor. Paul Payak, chief analyst of the organization, said, quote, Despite having a million words at our disposal, it is unlikely that we will ever use more than just a tiny fraction of them. He says, The average person's vocabulary is fewer than 14,000 words out of a million a person who is linguistically gifted would use only about 70,000 words. My take is that uh, we as writers should use those 14,000 words most commonly. We don't need to reach for the dictionary or the thesaurus too often. But English, even among the 14,000 words that we know, offers choices. And often we should choose to use the more evocative and muscular word. And sometimes reaching for the thesaurus is the way to find it. Words like empowerment and caregiver and facilitate and solutions and innovative and sustainable and leadership have no resonance in fiction. If a Boeing executive, a a university administrator, or a government uh, employee uses the word in in a report, we shouldn't use it in our fiction, probably. As if our language weren't already watered down, uh, weak words are being invented every day. We as writers should use words with punch. Some words bring forth more evocative images than other words, that have an identical or a similar meaning, they dig deeper. These words, these more muscular words, dig deeper into our minds than do their pallid equivalents. Uh, There must be thousands and thousands of examples, but here are a couple uh, of powerful words as opposed to the less powerful words. Vanish is a more evocative word than disappear. Disappear is a fine word, but vanish has more punch. Crimson is more evocative than the word red. Loathe is stronger than hate. Eat rather than consume. Shove rather than push. Sprint rather than run. Loser instead of having issues with success. Junkie instead of chemically dependent. 
stupid jerk instead of he had attitudinal difficulties, sweat instead of perspiration. Oh, there must be tens of thousands of examples. And I list these just as examples of how we should choose our word. Is there a more muscular, punchy word available? Maybe our, maybe we know it among our 14,000, or maybe the thesaurus will uh, show it. Now, exceptions exist to this, to, to our finding a, a stronger word. If your protagonist is a debutante in 1880 Charleston, she will say perspire, seldom sweat. If your character is a vice principal at a junior high, she will indeed use the phrase attitudinal difficulties. When we write a word, we often should ask, is there a punchier word? Is there a word that has some spice to it rather than a vanilla flavor? We have arrived at the end of this episode. I'm glad you were along for it. Until next time, this is Jim Thayer, and please keep tapping those keys.